So I turned 41 this year. I know I don't look it with my full head of hair and youthful appearance. Uh, Pastor Mitch is about my age and I'm so jealous of his beautiful locks. I can't do it, sorry. I got a Father's Day card from Ruben. They go to PCS here and you know how they get the kids to fill out the card, you know. I love to do this with my dad. My dad is great because... And then there was one that said my dad had something hair like brown or black or blonde or whatever and Reuben wrote my dad has tiny hair <laughs> which I couldn't argue with so he was right but I keep telling Lauren 41 so I'm about due for a midlife crisis I think maybe I could get a motorbike or something like that what do you reckon yeah actually the first time I rode a motorbike uh, I was lucky to survive so picture this you know on a farm at the top of this hill and typical country it was a dirt bike the the extent of the lesson I got was okay accelerator brake clutch off you go that was about the level of instruction that I got and it was this top of the hill that went, you went through a gate and then the road hooked around to the right and then kept going down the hill and so you know first time riding a motorbike I was pretty tentative and as I started to go I panicked a bit and if you know a motorbike, the accelerator is here. You know, you pull the thing back and it goes. And I panicked a bit and gripped both handlebars really tight. And of course, they pulled it right back and it shot off straight out of the gate, but way too fast for me to turn. So I ended up going down, straight down this big bumpy dirt, like just paddock and trying to, and keeping my legs on both sides of the bike. And it was about halfway down the hill before I actually realised, remembered where the brake was and so stopped. And I didn't fall off. I didn't fall off, I survived. And that ride became legendary in that family, you know, kind of like the man from Snowy River down, off, down the hill. Uh, but that was my first experience of, of a motorbike and I was pretty lucky not to be seriously injured. Hey, that all has nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight, but rather than a midlife crisis, I wonder if you've ever had a crisis of belief. Or maybe not a crisis, but even just a moment where you find yourself questioning or, or doubting or, or wondering about your faith. You know, I have a long history of believing in God. I was baptised in the bathtub at our home group when I was six years old. My mum tells me I spoke in tongues even before that when I was five. Uh, and I grew up in kids' church, youth. I felt a call to study theology, which I did for 10 years. So really, my whole life, I've never known anything other than belief in God. But of course, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been times of, of questioning. I can remember maybe even just five years ago uh, when I was wrestling with, I, 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 the best way I can describe it is the rationality of my faith. I don't think I ever doubted God, but I, want, I was wondering whether my belief in God was logical and something that I would have arrived at on my own rather than just, I grew up in a Christian home and therefore I believe. So it was that moment of reckoning where I thought, is this something that I own for myself that I believe I would have arrived at on my own, even if I hadn't have grown up in a Christian home? So I was sitting on a plane going to the US actually, and I just reading a book called A Public God, which is about a natural theology, essentially how we can see God and know God from the world around us the evidence of God that exists in the world. And it was one of those providential moments, I think, when God brought just the right book across my path at just the right time, which really helped me and built my confidence, strengthened my confidence in the, in the, uh, that my belief in God was rational and reasonable and not just because my parents told me that that's what I should believe. I reckon even if we don't talk about them, a lot of us have moments like that. 
society certainly doesn't help. You just need to look at the trends and data to know that uh, attitudes towards Christian belief are changing rapidly. And I think our society is becoming more secular and less Christian all the time. You might have seen the 2021 census data that came out last year. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, sorry to give you statistics, but they, from 1971 to 2021, so 50 years, not a long time in the grand history of the nation, right? 50 years. The percentage of people identifying as Christian changed from about 87% in 1971 down to 43% now. 50 years, 87% down to 43%. So we can say now that less than half the people in this country actually call themselves Christian. So we're officially in the minority, right? We can speculate as to why. Maybe, maybe in 1971 there were lots of nominal Christians or that was just the default position. If you didn't know what to put, you just put Christian. But I think that says something as well, that Christian is no longer the default position. You know, it's not the, the thing that people think, oh, well, I don't know really what I believe, but I'm, I think I believe in God, so I'm Christian. I don't think that's the case anymore. Now, let me start up front. I don't think we need to be defensive about that in any way. In fact, throughout history, the church has done some of its best work when it's been in the minority, when it's been persecuted, when it's been marginalised. And what a great mission field if 57% of the country now says that they don't believe that they're Christian anymore. But back to this question of, of a crisis of belief. And I think the reality is that belief in God, our belief in God is constantly challenged. Not just by proper atheists like Richard Dawkins who wrote that book that was huge a few years ago, The God Delusion. But often now, just by regular people, I think, who see our beliefs as kind of a quaint relic of the past. You know, someone might say, oh, well, I think we've progressed beyond that now. Or our society's moved beyond that belief or that view or that faith in God. So within that context, and you know, we've been speaking all year about building a courage culture, which I think is so timely, so relevant to right now. I wanted to speak at the end of the year about why we need to have courage to believe courage to believe. You know, do we really need courage to believe? Well, I think that we do. I think that we do. And actually, our reality is not new either. If you're looking for a great example of a society where belief in God was not a popular or widely held view, you don't need to look any further than the church of the New Testament. I think we can learn from the New Testament church, which was a church that existed and thrived in the midst of persecution and marginalization. They needed courage to believe. Must be a 1 Corinthians night, Sonia, because I'm going there as well. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 12. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. So problems in the church. And if you're interested, here's an early example of identity politics. Right? There's nothing new under the sun, as they say. But people in this church were aligning themselves around certain leaders, forming groups, building their identity around their alignment with this particular leader, and causing problems. So Apollos, for example, was apparently this great communicator, dynamic, interesting, compelling, a really strong debater, which was very popular in, in Corinth at the time. And then Paul, on the other hand, was a bit dour. 
not as interesting to listen to, not as dynamic. And so you had these groups aligning themselves around various leaders that they identified with. Let me tell you, dividing into identity groups and then arguing with, with each other never ends well. Show me one good thing that ever came out of identity politics. But Paul said, be of one mind, united in thought of purpose. And it reminds me of Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. So our primary identity should always be our identity in Christ. But in verse 13, has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptised in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptised in my name. And then he remembers, oh yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptising anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Now may we never let clever speech lead us into doubt or a crisis of faith and away from the good news and the power of the cross. Can you say amen? Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. My first point is this. I think belief requires courage because it will always look foolish to the world. Belief requires courage because it will always look foolish to the world. And it takes courage to hold on to something that the society we live in thinks is foolish. We don't take our cues from them though. I'm sure most of you didn't come to belief because of philosophy or scholarship or debate or the intelligence of the intelligence. You know, let's remember what brought us to this place of belief. And if you talk to people and hear their stories of conversion, most of us believed because we encountered God when we, when we needed him or because we experienced the presence and the power of God and we know that we know that we know that we know that he is real and he exists. Now, very rarely do I hear someone say, well, believing in God just made really good logical sense to me at the time, so I just decided to start believing. More often than not, there's something much deeper at work. The power of the cross rather than the wisdom of the wise. John Wesley tells this story of his salvation, and it might come up on the screen, I hope. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly. Have you been there before? Doing something that's unwillingly, that turns out to be just the right thing. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. If you've read that before, I'm surprised anyone can get saved by that. But about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. You, know, you, might, you might have had that sense of a heart strangely warmed or, or however you encountered God in that moment. But of course, not everyone, while at least 57% of the country hasn't had that experience yet. And so that belief, that certainty looks like foolishness to those who are headed to destruction. And that's why we need 
courage to believe. We should expect that at times we're going to be ridiculed for our belief, but that doesn't mean that we don't know that we know that we know that Jesus is real. Do you ever read the comments on online news stories? You never should, by the way, unless you want to get really depressed, but occasionally I do. Sometimes when there's a story about Christianity or anything to do with faith, someone will make a comment like, uh, ridiculing Christians for believing in the magical sky fairy or something like that. Have you read that before? Something along those lines. Our belief will always be foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. And so even if we know that we know that we know, it still takes courage to hold on to your belief when now the majority of the nation in which we live think that it's foolishness. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. So my second point is this. Belief requires courage because it always starts with faith. The world will never know God through human wisdom. So we have to have faith to believe and know God. You know, if there really is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, able to do anything, how can we possibly expect to fully comprehend that God with our limited human minds? So the idea that we'll believe, for example, only after we understand or will come to belief through understanding is just ludicrous. In fact, certainty and understanding only come after belief. There's a great quote from Augustine, hopefully will come up as well. Seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. And to me, that's always been so profound and so true. Belief comes first by faith, and then understanding comes later. For a long time, particularly since the Age of Enlightenment, it was thought that really we were primarily thinking beings and then our feelings would follow our thinking. So ideally, we'd think through something rationally and analytically and then respond with our feelings. And I think the whole world would be wonderfully calm and rational if that was actually the case. But it's pretty clear now that humans have feelings and intuitions that come even before we've thought about something automatic responses, intuitive responses to a, a person or a comment or, or a situation that come even before we actually have the time to think about our reaction. We have an instinctual reaction to something and then what's interesting is our mind invents justifications for that reaction. <laughs> so our emotions come first and then our minds sort of engage in this post hoc justification for the way that we're feeling. Think about this. I don't care how you vote, but for example, if you always vote Labor and you hear a Liberal Prime Minister speaking, you'll be more inclined to disagree, disagree with what's being said even before you've thought through what the content of that message is. We just have these instinctual reactions based on our ideas and then we think through them after the fact. It's been proven that our minds find logical reasons to disagree in order to support our emotional response. We're wonderfully complex human beings, aren't we? And I think the same generally is true of belief, belief in God. Once you've had that encounter with God that leads you to belief, your mind then is much more open to what God might want to reveal to you. It just makes sense, right? If your heart is open, if your heart is oriented towards God, then your mind is more open to what God might want to say to you. 
But if your first reaction when you hear about God is cynicism or skepticism, is it any wonder why your mind is closed? And I think that's a big reason why the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Belief comes first and then understanding. Seek not to understand that you may believe, rather believe that you may understand. Belief requires courage because it starts with faith, even when we don't have understanding. Verse 22. It is foolish to the Jews, this is the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Does that sound familiar? Someone's offended or someone's saying it's all nonsense? So my third and final point is this. Belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. Belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. And let me explain that. I think just like the Jews or the Gentiles in the day of the New Testament church, people are either offended or they think that we're talking nonsense. The Jews are offended, the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But what's so offensive about this gospel message that we believe in? I think, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and it's a bit long, so just, just stick with me, see if you can make sense of it. He's talking about belief in God. If there does exist an absolute goodness, God, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, in other words, if there's no God, then all our efforts are, in the long run are, help, are, are hopeless. What does it matter anyway if there's no God, no goodness in the world? But if it is, if the universe is governed by God or by goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. God is the only comfort he is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the, either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it and we have reacted the wrong way. So let me summarise the gospel message out of this passage. Number one, if God is absolutely good, he doesn't like most of what we do. <laughs> Number two, despite our best efforts, we fail every day. Number three, we're not likely to do any better tomorrow. Number four, God is either the only comfort or the supreme terror, depending on how we respond to him. You know, we already live in a world where every, everyone gets offended by everything, right? You know, words of violence, even thinking the wrong way can get you cancelled. You know, so is it any surprise that a gospel message like that is offensive to people? It's that was happening back in the New Testament. The Jews were offended. The Greeks thought it was all nonsense and it's still happening now. So I think belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. There's a picture if you've got it. I don't know if we can put it up on the screen. I asked Lauren whether I should put it up because I thought maybe someone will be offended by this. But I thought um, it was just a bit of fun. That's the society that we live in now. 
for better or worse, that's the situation we find ourselves in. That's our context. That's the, the harvest field that we have for the gospel. But we have to be prepared that when we go into this world with this gospel message, this message that we have believed in, that we hold dear, that we, uh, the, the belief that guides our lives, that people are going to find it offensive. That, mess, that gospel message says to someone, you're not good enough on your own, you need forgiveness and salvation, you need to stop living by your own standard and be accountable to a higher standard. And I think that's an offensive message in a society where, which says that just being true to yourself is the gold standard. I'm just being authentic. I'm living out my, my truth. You know, if that's the gold standard of existence, living out your truth, and we come along and say, actually, you're accountable to a much higher truth that actually demands more of you than you would ever demand of yourself, that's an offensive message. We're building a courage culture this year. Why do we need courage to believe, to hold on to our belief, to treasure that belief? Belief requires courage because it looks foolish to the world. Belief requires courage because it always has to start with faith, even when we don't understand. And belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. I'm going to get the worship team to come back, but as they do, we want to ask ourselves why we bother. <laughs> if belief requires that much courage, and if, if, we, if we have to do that against what society says, even if it looks foolish, even if it requires faith, even if it's offensive, what's the benefit of belief? Well, I think the fact that you're here probably means that you've answered that question for yourself. But let's look back at 1 Corinthians, verse 24 and verse 30. Verse 24 says, But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 30 says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. You know, we believe in the gospel as the, the very power and wisdom of God. And because of that belief, we're united with Christ Jesus. We've been made right with God. We've been made pure and holy, and we've been freed from sin. So we believe. We have courage to believe, or I hope we do. As our nation becomes less Christian, I think, again, we will continue to find ourselves on the outer in a place where our belief in God, which is so precious to us, seems either offensive or foolish. You know, you might have people in your life, in your circles, even friends that sort of think of your belief in that way. They're either offended by parts of it or they just think you're a little bit foolish or a little bit crazy. But that's not meant to be discouraging. As I said earlier, the greatest periods of growth and flourishing in the history of the church have been in the face of persecution or marginalization so this isn't a sad message today this is a message to say the fields are white to harvest right so many people still need to hear the gospel message they need to be offended by that gospel message so that they can come to faith and hold on to that belief for themselves what we need in the face of that is we need courage we need courage to believe even when that belief looks like foolishness or is offensive to those that don't yet believe. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to worship a bit more.
Lord, we thank you for this belief that lives in our heart, for this confidence in you, for the fact that we know that we know that we know that you're real, you're present to us and you have saved us. God, I pray that even as society changes, even as the world that we live in changes, help us to be faithful witnesses to that belief. Help us to have the courage in our hearts that says, even if, even if the world thinks it's foolish or is offended or doesn't understand, Lord, help us to be true to that belief, to be true to your gospel message and to be faithful stewards of that message. Lord, as you've been building courage in our hearts this year in so many areas, pray that you would strengthen and reinforce that courage to believe. Thank you for that belief that sustains us no matter what comes in life. In Jesus' name, amen.